Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas and I love trees. Today's topic is one that has been in high demand, as several listeners have requested on multiple occasions. Don't think I didn't see, but I got some comments on social media because it's an incredibly popular fruit tree that I neglected to include in either one of my fruit tree miniseries. Today, I am finally covering the pawpaw. Here's the thing about the pawpaw. Either you have never heard of it, or you are desperately trying to ensure that more people know about it. I somehow went my whole life not knowing about this North American species, even through an accredited forestry education, until just a few years ago. And since then, I have still never seen one. So what's the big stink about this tree? The pawpaw is already an interesting tropical fruit tree, but what makes it fascinating is the fact that it does not at all grow in tropical latitudes. It is a forest anomaly found throughout the eastern United States, even as far north as Canada. But despite being locally grown and allegedly delicious, you aren't likely to find pawpaw fruit in your grocery store's produce section. What is this tree's deal? Why is it here, and why does such a significant amount of the country not know about it? to go traipsing through the woods seeking out one of these mysterious pawpaw fruits, your best bet of finding it would be in the forest from the eastern edge of the Great Plains to the Atlantic coast and from the southern edge of the Great Lakes to nearly all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. In other words, almost the entire eastern United States. Unfortunately for me, I have spent quite nearly all of my life either north or west of the pawpaw tree's native range. It is a neighbor to many different temperate forest species like pines, oaks, hickory, maple, birch, and, well, just about anything in the eastern U.S. How, then, can this tree be considered tropical? Let's first look at its relatives. Starting very broadly, the pawpaw is a type of plant called a magnoliid, which is an ancient branch of the plant kingdom while the most recognizable distant relatives, magnolias and laurels, share a rather temperate environment, much of this clade evolved over a hundred million years ago when the earth was a much warmer place, so their descendants today are more likely found in the warm tropical regions near the equator. The family pawpaws belong to, for example, is a group scientifically called Ananaceae, or the custard apple family, out of over 2,000 species, almost all of them are found growing in tropical latitudes. Pawpaws are known scientifically as Asimina triloba. The group it belongs to, Asimina, which comes from an indigenous name for the fruit, is home to a dozen other species that grow in the United States, but almost all of them can't survive further north than the subtropical Gulf Coast so we have a plant that is simply geographically separate from the rest of its cousins. But things like this happen. The tulip poplar is a member of the magnolia family, but its range extends even further north than the pawpaw, and it is universally considered a temperate tree. Perhaps the pawpaw's biology helps support this tropical claim I'm making. 
The pawpaw is a rather small understory tree, meaning its height rarely exceeds 30 feet or 9 meters, and it prefers to grow in the shade of an otherwise dense forest. And while they often form as single-stemmed trees, it is also quite common for pawpaws to put more energy into growing multiple stems, maintaining a shorter, shrubby form. The leaves do not initially appear to be anything significant, up to a foot long, mainly oval, and deciduous. They actually remind me of Ohio buckeye leaflets. But should you bruise or crush the leaves, your nose will be hit by a rough odor that otherwise protects the pawpaw from predation by insects and mammals like grazing deer. The one insect that will feed on the pawpaw leaves is a butterfly known as the zebra swallowtail. These leaves are vital for this butterfly species because it is the only material that the zebra swallowtail larvae will feed on. Not only does it support the insect as food, but the rank chemicals are then passed on to the butterfly, which makes the zebra swallowtail a terrible snack for any predators that would otherwise eat them. Things get real weird when the pawpaw flowers show up, though. The best word that I can use to describe these flowers is, unfortunately, fleshy. The petals are thick and maroon with textured venation. The article that I have up about pawpaws right now is from the Susquehanna National Heritage Area, which describes them as beautiful. But folks, I cannot look at this flower without thinking the petals look like tongues. They look like tongues, and I think that's weird. Interesting, sure, but weird. These flowers, like the leaves, are also a bit stinky. You may think of flowers as being rather sweet-smelling to attract pollinators that like that good stuff, and this is actually a similar adaptation. But instead, the rotting odor attracts pollinators like flies that like that bad stuff. You know, the sort of bugs that swarm over piles of dung or decaying carcasses. This is one of those characteristics that you see in otherwise tropical plants, like the Rafflesia stinking corpse flower that inspired the Pokemon Vileplume, or the Amorphophallus titan arum, which looks exactly like its Latin name suggests it does. Thankfully, the smell of the pawpaw is much more muted than these infamous inflorescences. Unfortunately, these flowers are rather inefficient. Many plants are able to self-pollinate. They can use different flowers across the same individual to easily become fertilized and produce fruits. While self-pollination is possible for the pawpaw, its biological makeup causes this practice to be more difficult than in other species, specifically to prevent excessive inbreeding. Which, you know, makes sense, just at the cost of producing less than 1% of the fruit numbers in comparison to the flowers it puts out. More likely than not, a pawpaw tree will reproduce by forming clonal colonies and having new stems grow out of its laterally stretching roots. But at the end of the day, the primary human value in this plant is as a fruit tree, and much of the culture and association with it stems from this biological trait. The flowers themselves are quite tropical in nature, but the pawpaw fruit is unmistakably out of place in comparison to other North American tree species. It is often referred to as some combination of a mango, banana, pineapple, and papaya. Looking at a pawpaw, I am most easily reminded of a mango, green on the outside with a yellow fleshy interior. But like a banana, the outside color forms dark spots when the fruit is ripe and the texture becomes softer. The dark seeds inside are also like bananas, 
except for the fact that bananas have been genetically engineered to not be full of seeds, so most folks don't actually know what those look like. And interestingly enough, its similarities to the papaya is where we get the name pawpaw, a term once used as a common nickname for the former fruit. I would really like to try a pawpaw fruit, because apparently they're delicious. My coworker from Pennsylvania has described the flavor to me as being similar to banana custard. This flavor is why the pawpaw's family, Ananaceae, is referred to as the custard apple family, specifically the custard part. Edible, fruit-shaped things have long been referred to as apples in a general sense, my favorite example being a French name for potato being pomme de terre, or earth apple. Like, yeah, I guess. But if the pawpaw is truly that delicious, why aren't we growing it on a commercial scale? Pawpaws are the largest edible fruit indigenous to the United States. Scientists have determined that their large seeds were initially dispersed by megafauna, meaning large animals like mastodons and giant ground sloths. Climate change in that era would have encouraged a northward migration of such species, potentially explaining how a species like the pawpaw left more tropical latitudes to find a new home in North America. Today, no animal in the pawpaw's native range is large enough to digest these seeds. These older, larger animal species are all theorized to have gone extinct due to some combination of that changing climate and overhunting by early humans in that region. Yet the pawpaw had no trouble continuing to reproduce thanks to a new method of seed dispersal by humans known as agriculture. Ancestors of more modern indigenous tribes like the Chickasaw, Choctaw, and Creek were known to clear woodlands to form pawpaw orchards and selectively cultivate the fruits for favorable characteristics. Each of these nations had their own names for the fruit, with the modern genus name Asimina thought to have come from one of these Central Plains Algonquin languages like Shawnee or Miami, Illinois. It is in these languages that we see some initial signs of cultural significance with the pawpaw. The Shawnee's word for the pawpaw is also featured in their name for the month of September, which ultimately translates to pawpaw moon, when the time is right for these fruits to be harvested. That's one of the biggest reasons I've been holding off on covering this topic. I wanted to do so in the time of year that was most seasonally significant. Another example of significance in language has to do with the modern-day town of Natchitoches, Louisiana, which is not at all spelled how it's pronounced. Using the Caddo name for the pawpaw, which is spelled different but I can only assume is also pronounced Natchitoches, the town name is an allusion to the Caddo who were referred to by some European groups as pawpaw eaters or people of the pawpaw, further solidifying the importance of this crop for these peoples. Archaeological excavations also present more practical evidence of the pawpaw's importance. Dig sites have revealed that the earliest humans to occupy this region of North America regularly consumed pawpaw fruits when available and even consumed them in large amounts, likely as part of some seasonal feast. The fruit may also be dried and cut into strips to be consumed as fruit leather throughout the winter months. 
And while the fruit is the most obvious and likely the most important part of the plant to humans, it is known to have served a multitude of purposes. The fibrous inner bark can be used to weave string and rope, and the wood can be woven into baskets and mats or used as fire starter. The earliest example of European explorers encountering the fruit comes with Hernando de Soto exploring the Mississippi Valley in 1541. He observed how the native peoples he encountered grew and ate the pawpaw. A Portuguese man in his group additionally gave his opinion on the new fruit, comparing it to some sort of royal pear, which makes me now question if I actually want to try it, but overall complementing both its smell and taste. As European colonialism expanded over the continent, new settlers took favorably to this fruit long enjoyed by native peoples. Throughout the 17th and 18th centuries, colonists consumed pawpaws in large amounts from the Atlantic coast to the Illinois Territory. George Washington and Thomas Jefferson both grew pawpaw trees and enjoyed the fruit as a favorite dessert. The pawpaw was incredibly popular, but that popularity would tumble when the fruit ultimately took on a racial connection. Another group to significantly benefit from the pawpaw was enslaved Africans brought over to the Americas via the cruel Middle Passage. Enslaved people were very often not given the diverse and healthy nutritional options that are necessary for a balanced human diet. So throughout the 17 and 1800s, many of these communities took to growing pawpaw trees outside their houses. The fruits enabled them to incorporate some vital diversity into their diet, and even served as important sustenance for those who attempted to follow the Underground Railroad to freedom in the North. Historically speaking, this appears to be the most significant cultural connection for the fruit throughout the 1800s, though it does persist as a good food source when other options are less available. Pawpaws are written about in the Lewis and Clark expedition, but specifically referred to as something that was picked from the woodlands when other food stores ran low. Soldiers on both sides of the Civil War picked pawpaw fruits when available to give them some relief from the hardtack-heavy diet of military rations. And the fruit retained significance in poorer rural communities throughout the eastern United States because it was cheap and readily available. At this point, the pawpaw had fallen from a presidential favorite to what you eat when your options are slim, with a common nickname for the fruit being poor man's banana. Some of the reasoning behind this is considered to stem from that racial connection, tying the fruit to the diet of African and Native Americans. But while this contributed some, this is not considered to be the largest factor that killed the public perception of the pawpaw. After all, geneticists in 1916 held a contest to combine science and folk understanding of the fruit to breed and cultivate a superior and marketable pawpaw. We tried to make the pawpaw an American option in our grocery stores, but the advancement of technology in regards to long-distance shipping proved to be too much for the fruit. Other fruits, like actual bananas, could be stored much easier and for longer amounts of time than the pawpaw that couldn't be picked until it was ripe and softened rapidly after it was harvested. When you compared it to similar fruits, it just didn't hold the same level of profitability and was not considered to be a viable, staple produce. This is what ultimately led to the pawpaw, the largest edible fruit in the United States, to be forgotten why many of my listeners likely have never heard of it. But this is not the end of the pawpaw story. Someday soon, perhaps with the help of this episode, this American fruit may regain its prevalence in our culture, and it starts with overcoming some of those aforementioned racial biases. 
Throughout the 21st century, numerous tribal nations have been recovering their identities. Since European colonization reshaped the social makeup of this continent, laws have been passed to forbid indigenous peoples from practicing unique aspects of their culture. We are finally reaching a point where languages like Ojibwe Moan and Odom can be spoken and taught. Last year, the Nipmuc in Massachusetts crafted a traditional Michoon canoe near Boston for the first time in 300 years. And in 2020, the Catawba Indian Nation received a grant to start a food sovereignty program, which included planting 100 pawpaw trees. Because the simple act of growing and eating this fruit, as Spanish and Portuguese explorers observed almost 500 years ago, is a significant aspect of their culture. So it starts here, as it did long before colonization. But you can surely expect that whenever there's niche food culture to be had, hipsters are also going to want to get in on it. What was once known as the poor man's banana is now also referred to as the hipster banana, as rejecting the grocery store in favor of foraging for locally grown produce has become an important aspect of counterculture. And at the end of the day, the pawpaw has retained its regional significance in the forest where it grows around the Midwest and Appalachia. Throughout the month of September, the pawpaw moon, there are numerous pawpaw festivals in places like Albany, Ohio, Powhatan, Virginia, and York County, Pennsylvania. The Pennsylvania one is actually right around the corner from where my Nana lives, so I really need to go ahead and plan to make it there next year. This is the part of the episode where I typically talk about how climate change and human manipulation of the landscape has affected the given topic I am covering. Believe it or not, these factors are expanding the pawpaw's range and prevalence. It is believed to have been the Iroquois migrating with the pawpaw that extended its range as far north as southern Ontario. Otherwise, it is likely too cold for it to survive there on its own. But as our global climate is warming, which is generally a bad thing, this allows for the pawpaw's range to potentially spread farther and farther north into the upper reaches of the Midwest and New England, where it has yet to become integrated in the woodlands. Human activity has also drastically increased the deer population throughout North America. Despite how heavily deer are hunted by humans, predators like wolves are even more heavily hunted to the point that the deer population has been allowed to explode. Deer do not feed on the pawpaw because, as covered up in the biology section, the leaves as well as the twigs produce an incredibly unappetizing chemical. So deer will instead browse on everything but the pawpaw, and as more deer eat more of everything else, this allows room for these small trees to expand their clonal colonies and take up more space in the forest. The future is looking bright for the pawpaw. It still feels niche, and I'm convinced that most Americans remain unaware of its existence. But it was once known far and wide in these lands, and it is on a path to resurgence. I believe it's only a matter of time before we push other products to the back of our pantry to make room for America's largest native tree fruit. My Tree Walk video series, available to tree huggers on my Patreon, is about to start getting exciting. Because fall is finally here. We're still not seeing any real fall color in the forests of eastern Massachusetts, but over the next month I'll be planning trips up into northern New England where all the best leaf peeper action will be taking place. If you'd like to join in on my journeys yourself, head on over to patreon.com slash myfavoritetrees and start a 7-day free trial today. 
October is a special month, and not just for fall. Mostly for fall, actually, but what is more relevant right now is that October has three Tree Tuesdays. And just like I did in May, I'm taking advantage of this blue moon timing to release another mini-series, Nut Trees Number 2. Starting in two weeks, we're diving back into the snack mix to explore the diverse forests that give us cashews, pistachios, and macadamia nuts. On October 3rd, we'll be kicking things off with the cashew, a nut with a complicated biology involving false apples and severe allergic reactions, and an equally complicated history involving some rather dark labor practices. I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, please consider leaving a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their awesome stuff at academygarden.bandcamp.com. My cover art is by at BoomerangBrit on Instagram. My script editor and social media manager is the wonderful Lori Hilburn. Find me on Twitter and Facebook at MyFavoriteTrees or on Instagram at TreePodcast. You can support me directly by joining my Patreon at patreon.com slash myfavoritetrees or donate directly to a sustainable organization like the ones found on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love and give it a hug.